Good day to you. Hope you're having a wonderful day. Through every fault of my own, meaning totally my fault, uh, I did not get the Sunday morning Revelation Bible class recorded. So, I simply forgot to push the button, so it's totally my fault. So, I want to create this kind of a synopsis of what we went over in the class. We won't have the interaction. We won't have, you know, some of that. So, but we're, I'm going to go through my notes on this and what we were mainly discussing and do the best I can from memory. So, I want to start here with uh, this image that uh, Shirley Kidd in the congregation shared with me to show us where uh, the Isle of Patmos is. So, in this image, you'll see that uh, the, when we're zoomed out, You'll see the image of Greece to the left and um, Turkey to the right, and they call it Asia Minor in the old days. And off the coast of Turkey is a small dot over there, and it shows you Patmos. Now, we're going to zoom in and take a look at that so you can see it. If you're geographically challenged like I am sometimes, I forget where this little island is. But this is the island where John was being imprisoned when he had this vision and I guess wrote Revelation after this, you know, after this vision. So that's the island. That's where he was physically. That doesn't affect really the content of uh, the book and what we're studying, but it's interesting to know. And I think it kind of helps you understand he's in prison there um, because of Christian persecution, because he had been preaching and teaching about the Lord. Now, there was one other thing, and from last week, question 10, where um, John is identifying himself, and let me go back to that question here. How does John identify himself to his readers? And it says 9a, and that's, that's because it's pointing us back to verse 9. So if we look at verse 9, and yes, I, I have my notes here. So if we look at verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion, in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. So that's the part I wanted us to look at, because I meant to make a certain point. It says he's our, our brother and companion, right, in the tribulation, the troubles of this world, and in the kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord, right? We're all citizens of the kingdom if we're Christians and we're following Christ. And then it says, and patience of Jesus Christ. And looking at this word for patience, um, the patience really has to do with perseverance and endurance. Like we're, we're waiting patiently for the return of Jesus. That's It's not the patience of Jesus. It is we're patiently waiting and enduring, waiting for Jesus' return is what that really is telling us. So he's together with us waiting for that return, right? So that was it. That was a small point from question number 10 that I had not made, and I wanted to make sure I made that. So to continue on with the class, we're going to read Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. That's Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of these seven lampstands, 
one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So with that in mind, with those verses in mind, those we're going to move on to the next question which we were supposed to be doing this week, and that is question number 14. So question number 14, how does John describe the Son of Man? Well, he describes him as clothed with a garment down to the feet, with a voice as the sound of many waters, girded about the chest with a golden band. In his right hand, he has seven stars, head and hair white as wool, white as snow, out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword, which we know and associate that with being the Word of God, the Bible. Eyes like a flame of fire. Countenance like the shining sun. Now, countenance is overall appearance. He was just really bright, as bright as the sun. He was shining bright. Feet like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Now, I did mention, and uh, I want to mention this here, uh, this always reminds me of the story in Daniel of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, because Jesus was in the furnace with them. He, was, he walks through the furnace, through the trials, through the troubles of this world with us. And this, this always makes me think of that. And uh, maybe it's a little bit childish that comes from my childhood, that story. Uh, that was one of those stories that really stuck with me when I was a kid. And it let me know that Jesus is with us in, in our troubles, in our times of trouble. So. That was really impressed upon me very well through that story. Um, so overall, we can understand with this appearance why John fell at his feet, right? Because that, was, that, was, that would be a scary appearance. But also talking about this appearance, I have some similar examples from the Old Testament that, that kind of go with this. And it, it relates showing that Jesus is God. That's the idea, because here these old descriptions were supposed to represent the Lord through these visions in, in, in these accounts, and I'm going to read these now. 
Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Now, this is a vision of the Ancient of Days, and that's how the heading is in my Bible. Yours could be slightly different, but nonetheless, the idea is he's, he is seeing God. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Now that's the example from Daniel. And then we have an example from Ezekiel, chapter 43, verse 2. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Again, a, a testament to his voice being like many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. He was extremely bright. Then if we look at Daniel chapter 10, verses 4 through 7, Now on the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of Ephaz. Now notice he's girded with gold, much as he's talking about um, a golden band on his chest. This sounds more like a belt, but still, I think the idea is similar. His body was like beryl. Now, beryl is a gem. It's uh, basically semi-precious, I believe. It's described as a transparent pale green, blue, or yellow. And it relates or is very similar to topaz. So, topaz can also have those, those colors and appear uh, kind of transparent. So. so, his body was like beryl. His face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Now, I included this last verse because I think there's a similarity here between verse 7 here in Daniel uh, chapter 10 and Paul's vision on Damascus where Paul heard and understood the Lord and in his meeting with the Lord there, but the men around him did not. So it's I'm, I'm just saying there's some similarity there. You can see that. I think that's appropriate and I just thought I would point that out as a minor thing. So, that's how John describes the Son of Man, and that's some examples from the Old Testament. We see very similar descriptions, and it, it reinforces the idea that Jesus is God. Just like God has the three, you know, is the Trinity, and Jesus is God. It's just to reinforce that, and it just reminds us of that, right? So we look at question 15 now. What was John's reaction when he saw him, when he saw the Lord? Well, he fell at his feet as dead, right? I mean, here he's seeing this vision and the glory and power of the Lord. Um, 
in a way that we've never seen. And it makes sense that when you meet the creator of the universe, because the Lord created everything, that while you may have a lot of awe and admiration and good things, part of that awe is also having a little fear and appreciation for the power of that person, for having the power of God and power of the Lord right there in front of you. So some of that seems like a, a valid um, reaction to the Lord, right? Then we look at the second part of question 15. What was he first told? What did the Lord first tell John? Well, we know from the verse here that the Lord put his right hand on John and said, do not be afraid, right? The first thing the Lord does is, is calm John down. He calms his fear and, you know, he's concerned for John. And so it does show that the Lord is concerned for us, even in all his power and his glory. All right, so we move on now to question number 16. How does the Son of Man identify himself? Well, in verses 17 and 18, he says, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. He says, I have the keys of Hades and of death. And I thought, I thought it said, he said, I have the keys of death and Hades. I may have, I may have looked at two different versions. Sometimes they flip those around, those verses. Let me just check on my, my reading here. Yeah, I have the keys of Hades and of death. So, um, okay, so I did keep it in the correct order for my my translation. I'm using mainly the New King James Version. Some versions may flip those around. But we want to look at that statement. I have the keys of Hades and of death. What is the key of death? Well, Jesus has the key of death. That means he controls life and death. He controls death, right? He has won out over death, meaning that he is the one who gives us eternal life. The Lord has secured that eternal life for us. Now, in this life, in this body, we're, this body is going to die, but we're going to live on. And in the future, with the Lord and with God, we will have eternal life. And he controls our eternal salvation. Only Jesus can give us that. So he has the key or power over death, right? So, what then is the key of Hades? Now, this is one of those times where I feel like Hades is not just referring to the Greek underworld. In their mythology, Zeus and the gods sat on Mount Olympus, and that was their heaven. Hades was their Underworld. It was the land of the dead. Hades was also the ruler of Hades, which is kind of confusing, but that was his territory. He was the god of the dead, right? But this was the place, the inescapable realm of the dead that you did not want to go to. This was a terrible thing. So that, in their sense, was their version of hell. So a lot of times, since this was written in Greek, a lot of times you'll see Hades. Sometimes it can refer to, and a lot of people say this, and I understand this, they say it re 
they relate it more to the grave and the, the underworld or Sheol, like the, the Jews say. But sometimes it's referring to hell, which is Satan and his minions, and includes that second fiery death, right? And this is saying that Jesus has power over Satan, his minions, all the forces of hell, and he has power over that second death. Now, why do we say that? Because in this case, Jesus is our escape from death, the second death, and the underworld. He has the key, and because he will judge. If you remember, Jesus supplies our escape from sin, the, the, the death of sin, because we owe this debt of sin, and we should be uh, judged correctly for it. However, and I say correctly, but I mean correctly if you're sinful, right? And, and we were sinful. But through Jesus' blood, he washes away that sin. So he is our escape from that punishment and that judgment. And he has that key. He has power over that. And he will judge, just like you see in the one parable he talks about, that the king will judge between the sheep and the goats. You want to be a sheep. He... Um, he is that judge. So we want to make sure that we understand that, that he has that power over, and he's really already won and is victorious over Satan and his minions and hell. And if you want, if you still want to look at that more as the underworld, nonetheless, that's still, in their mythology, that's still the bad place. So, you know, what we think of as the bad place, all right? So, you know, we would call it hell because it's the bad place. We don't want to go there, the lake of fire, right? So I hope that's helpful. That's We talked about this during class, and hopefully I've explained that in a, in a decent way. The main thing to remember is that Jesus has all authority, and he has overcome these things, and he is our only way out of death. He is our only way to eternal salvation. It's the main thing. So if we look on at question 17, what was John told to write? Well, there's three things he was told. The things which you have seen, and those would be kind of past. The things which are, what's, what's right now. And then the things which will take place after this. So, definitely, he's writing about past, present, and future at that moment. Why does the Lord tell John to write these things? Now, this seems like a maybe almost an obvious or silly question, but the idea, the reason that the Lord tells John to write these things is so that we will know them. Sometimes I think we forget that the Lord... God, Jesus, the Spirit wants us to know these things. Wants us, that's why we have the Bible. That's why they're written down. He wants us to know and understand these things. So, sometimes it may be a little difficult to understand, and we get that because that's true for all of us. We have things in the Bible that we may struggle to understand, and that's okay. We have to keep trying. God wants us to understand them. So let's look at question 18. So question 18 is, what is the explanation of the seven stars and seven golden, golden lampstands? 
Well, the seven stars, we're going to start with the stars. The seven stars are the seven angels or messengers of the seven churches. Now, an angel, when we say angel, we almost always think of heavenly angels. But messenger, an angel in this sense, messenger can refer to a human messenger, such as even John the Baptist. Or these could be messengers being sent by Jesus. Maybe they're a prophet or a disciple or preacher that are being sent with these letters to these congregations. Now, it can, it can mean, and oftentimes it does mean, a supernatural class of being that serves God. But in this case, these angels, I believe, are intended to be the, the messengers, the people delivering these letters to the congregations. The second part of this is the golden lampstands. Now, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, these seven churches are in that part of what we call Turkey or Asia Minor back then. Now, some translations are going to say candlesticks, and then some will say lampstands. You might even find something else, but those are the two things I saw. But I think the meaning is the same regardless. It is a candle, whether it's on a, you know, whether it's a candlestick or a, uh, or a lamp stand, it is a light producing source, right? So what does, what do these lampstands represent? Well, they represent the spirit of the congregation, which is the spirit of God in the congregation, right? It represents your, our spirit, which comes from the Lord, is the Spirit of God, and it should be our light shining out into the darkness of the world. So our congregation should be shining out the light of Jesus into the world. So that's the idea. That is the Spirit of the Lord. Now we want to move on to Revelation chapter 2. And I'm going to move in our book down to like the first question, which is, what are the main points of this chapter? So if we look, the main points of this chapter are going to be these letters. It's the letter to the church in Ephesus, the letter to the church in Smyrna, or Smyrna. I'm going to say Smyrna most of the times. So I don't know why I said Smyrna. Uh, the letter to the church in Pergamos and the letter to the church in Thyatira. Now, I want to preface these letters uh, with this. Um, we should take these letters to heart as a congregation. We need to examine ourselves and make sure that we're not making these mistakes that are being mentioned in these letters. And we should also realize what we are doing correct and continue in those things, because these letters are both encouragement and warnings. The Lord mentions things that these congregations are doing that are good. And I'm, I'm going to call them congregations more than I am churches, because the Church of Christ, and I don't mean that like our organization, the Church of Christ, I mean the Lord's Church is really all Christians, all Christians who are really following Him. Now, I know... We can talk about that because that's a kind of a nuanced description, 
because there are people who claim to be that aren't and all this. But I'm not getting into that. I'm just saying that the Lord's church, the body of Christ, is really all Christians who are really following him. Okay? So I'm going to call these congregations more than I am churches. Nonetheless, um, these letters are encouraging and warnings to us. And I think some of the most valuable lessons in Revelation are actually in these letters from the Lord to those congregations. And because of that, they are also for us. They are some of the best lessons for us. So we're going to start with verses 1 through 7 in chapter 2. This is Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is the loveless church. In the heading in my Bible, this is the loveless church, and you'll see why. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. I will give to eat from the tree of life, which, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So there's a lot here in just this first letter. Let's look at question two first. No, I apologize. This was the same mistake I made. So we're going to skip or table questions two and three for now because Questions 2 and 3 really pertain to all the letters. And so I don't want to try to answer those when we've really only read the first letter. So we're going to skip 2 and 3, and we're going to come back to them later at the end of the letters. That's where I feel those questions really belong. So we're going to move on to question 4. And we're looking specifically at this letter. For what does the Lord commend the church in Ephesus. Now we're looking at verses 2 and 3. Their works, their labor, their patience for testing those who claim to be apostles but were liars, for persevering and laboring for his name's sake, not growing weary. So this, at first, the Lord encourages them and says, I know of these good things about you. So then we look at question number five. For what does the Lord condemn them? Now here, this is verse four. The Lord is letting them know what they have wrong. And that is that they have lost their first love. What does this actually mean? You have left your first love. Well, I broke that down. I went through and I looked at 
these words here. The word for left, like I have left my first love, means to abandon, to leave, to, to walk away from. So they've le walked away from that, that love. Now the word for first, in this case, it can mean chronologically first, but in this case, I believe it means important, your most important love. Okay? You'll understand why as we go. It sounds like it's a, it sounds, you could say that it also refers to your initial zeal and love of God when you first come to God, but, and, and I, can, I can understand that and, and I can agree with that to some degree because that's when you first come to God and you have that zeal and that love. But um, I also believe it means important. You're important. But, and you'll see why. Then the, the word for love is agape, which is God's love, not man's love, not our love. But this is God's love where you have this concern and care for others, right? You want to do things that benefit others, and that's God's love, and that's what should be our love for others, right? So we have left, or they have left their most important godly love, right? So in other words, they were no longer practicing God's love. Even though they were doing the right things, they weren't doing them with the right motives. And you remember Paul says, if I do things without love, you know, no matter how perfect and right I do everything else, if I do it without love, it's, it's useless, it's pointless. And that's what the Lord is telling them here. They are no longer practicing in God's love. They're not acting in love toward others. It's their motives that are suspect. And that's important. It's important that we remember that as a congregation. Then if we work, uh, look, I'm sorry, if we look at question six, what solution does Jesus give for restoring their first love? Well, he says two things. He says, this is in verse five, remember from where they have fallen, repent and do the first works, right? So remember from where they have fallen. Well, when we are acting in God's love, when we are following the Lord, we are drawing closer to God. So you say we're drawing closer to heaven, right? But if we're not acting in God's love and we're not acting as the Lord wants us to do, then we're falling away from God in heaven, right? We're drawing away <clears throat> from the Lord and from heaven. So he's saying, remember where you have fallen from where you have fallen. Um and then also, um, he's saying, repent and do the first works. The first works, right? Just like the first love, it's the important works, right? The works of love, the things that demonstrate God's love, it's the important works. This was what, um, if you remember, the Lord talked to the Pharisees about, and he says, look, you're, you're doing all these things, which is fine, but you are forgetting the weightier matters of the law. You're forgetting the important matters, grace and love and mercy. You know, he was, and that's kind of, this kind this goes along with that, you know, the important works. Because the important works are those works of love. If we look at question seven, 
What warning does Jesus give the church in Ephesus? So, the warning he gives them is repent or else, right? He says repent or else he will come quickly and remove their lampstand from its place. Now, what does that represent? What does removing that lampstand represent? Well, it represents removing the light, right? And what did we say this light was? This is the light of the Spirit, the light of the Lord, that we should be shining out into the darkness. But he's saying he's going to remove the Spirit, basically, and the light of the Lord from that congregation. And basically, they will not be a part of God's kingdom. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I will come quickly and I'll remove I will remove the Spirit of the Lord, and you will no longer be a part of the body, the body of Christ, which we all want to be a part of. So, that's where we ended the class. So, that's where I'm going to end here now. Um, we'll, we'll pick up next week with question eight. And I wanted to do this to make sure that everybody had a chance to, to keep up with what was going on in the class. And I apologize for not recording it um, next week. I will endeavor to do better, okay? All right, so thank you for watching. Hope you have a wonderful day. May the Lord bless you and keep you safe. And remember, God loves you.